have hit record. <gasps> I am recording. Oh, I feel different now that we're recording. Like, there's like a special magic that just like whooshed over us. Oh, yeah. Whooshed is really the word, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, suddenly my, my wrinkles are gone. I'm like that filter that makes you look fuzzy and, and dewy, but not in a gross, sweaty way. Not the Sybil Shepherd uh, way. <laughs> no, never that way. Please, God. <laughs> Shall we I'm sorry. I, I can't see you with all the fog in front of your face. My gosh, it's like I'm looking at you through gossamer. You're so young. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Calling Do Her Smile Man, it will it saves the world every time it lights up. <laughs> We're so loopy today. Oh, Phils. Oh, hello, friend. This is a family that looks good in red and blue. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 11, Brown Like Me, part two. I'm just going to move you so I can see your beautiful face. Oh, it's real nice today. I've tried really hard for you. Is it is it the glow of... Meeting a certain someone. Oh, oh, Liz Bay. My Liz Bay. She's amazing. There's just, oh, pu- good public speakers, man. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could lip sync along with the majority of her stump speech. There is nothing like watching someone who has the power of their conviction. Like, she was mad on behalf of the people who have who lose from this corruption. Like she is mad. She is sassy. Mm-hmm. And it just, it vibrates. It emanates from her. Ooh. It's so good. It's so good. Ugh. And we got to watch um, one of our um, Congress people from Chicago uh, endorse her live in front of us. So that oh, was a big deal. Very cool. Yeah, it was very fun. It was wonderful. And man, I don't know how she does those selfie lines after talking. I do not understand. No, like, and I'm assuming she met everyone like she always does, Every right? single person who stood in line. And we were told it was a small group because in New York it was like 12,000 and we were only about two or three that stayed after for this one. Two or 3,000? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. We were, I would say, toward the beginning half of the line and we were in line for two hours after she was done. Wow. She's amazing. I literally don't, I cannot smile and pose for things like that and she is a machine. I don't know how her face is still on. Seriously. She's amazing. There's a thing that, you know, some politicians get. It's oh, from, oh, it's because it's in the West Wing. When, yeah. When he, 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 his hand gets sprained. Mm-hmm. Crazy pants. But what about their faces? We just kept joking that we think it's because she's just holding out for the eight years after she gets elected and she will never smile again. <laughs> so she's just holding on to the joy while she can because it will balance out in the end. Well, Dana Carvey said when he did the Wayne's World movie because he mm-hmm. never had to smile his face like that for that long because the sketches uh-huh. were so short that he literally would uh, soak his face in ice water at the end of the yeah. shoot days. Yeah. Oh, she's wonderful. Oh, she's wonderful. I just... It's a great way to start our episode. Right? Women! Yes, smart, intelligent, angry women. The Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) I was just going to (laughs) say. My God, we have a new tagline. Oh, so happy. I'm Lauren Milberger. Hey, I'm Jesse Mullins. And welcome to part two, which we really already said, but there's really no way to transition these episodes when we have an opening. Yeah, we, but we are very excited to be back with one of our favorite two-part episodes, or one long-part episode, as we discussed last time, of Brown Like Me. We have so much to talk about. Uh, I think we should just go into it. 
Let's get into it. All right. We are now in Phil's. Uh, Miles is talking to Phil and how, um, you know, everything worked out. His insurance was covered. And now he has a brand new bumper, uh, which, of course, a very deadpan. Phil goes, what a relief. We were all so worried. Yes, we, we truly were. I also feel like this is I've. I feel like Phil feels kind of long lost to me. I feel like I haven't had a quality Phil moment in a while. No, we really haven't. Right? I was like, oh, Phil's. Oh, hello, friend. <laughs> who, are, who are you? Old friend. Now I want to sing. No, remember the rights. They're expensive. Yeah, I know. Sorry. So there's a really great line, particularly where Miles attributes his car as a symbol of his success and hard work. Mm, yes. Which, of course, then we hear a car screeching to a halt. Most likely hitting another car. And I wrote, Avery walks in a vision in red. I also, I also feel like I have to tell our audience, because I didn't realize this until you stood up, that you're wearing a shirt mm-hmm. that says 90s feel. I do. Yep. 90s feels. You're, you're dressed appropriately. I am always on brand for our podcast. <laughs> you're so on brand. <laughs> So uh, what I was going to say mm-hmm. is that when Avery enters, I just wrote, again, in all caps, because I tend to only write about Avery Brown in all caps. As you should. Is, oh, my God. Her coordination is impeccable. Much like the blue and black ensemble from part one, this mm-hmm. red and black ensemble with coordinating hat is impeccable. She's perfect. This is a family that looks good in red and blue. Oh, they really do. Like Wait. America. <laughs> Too much? I just, I just went to a, a political rally. Come on. That's true. I, <laughs> I, I enjoyed that joke on many different levels. <laughs> so I'm saying uh, check mark. I'm cool with the joke. Huzzah. Huzzah. Listeners, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> We're so loopy today. Woohoo. Let's go. Avery asks who inside owns a blue BMW and almost all the hands raise. I appreciated that joke. Yeah, that's a really good joke. So she reads the license plate number, and slowly the hands all go down, except Miles. Oh, God. What I love is that he looks around, hoping that someone else's hand is up. That's my favorite little moment. He's like, maybe, maybe I'm maybe. No. (laughs) He just bites his hand. Miles is a broken man. The the Brown family has killed him. Uh, It's like a plague. What's next? Locusts. And then he closes the door and screams because he sees what happened to the car. (laughs) I appreciate that Avery is very prepared. She's like, oh, it appears we've had an accident. She's prepared with her information. She's very sure the insurance will help everything. (laughs) That's the thing is she's not phased. No. Not not phased at all. I feel like if Murphy would have come in and just completely blamed the other person, Avery just sort of floats in and goes, well, it's obviously not my fault. Uh, but it happened, and uh, mm-hmm. everything we paid for, and, and it'll it'll be fine. You know, it's really no big deal. I really appreciate that. We've had an accident. No, no, Avery. <laughs> <laughs> you hit a parked car. <laughs> Phil greets Avery by saying that she lights up the whole damn bar. She does. She really does, doesn't she? Calling do her smile, man. It will. It saves the world every time it lights up. Oh, that's so sweet. I love her. So then Bill enters, and uh, Phil meets the Browns, he really finds it hard to believe, you know, he's been married to Phyllis for so long that how could anyone divorce? Uh, To which the two of them rattle off many, many, a litany, we might say, of reasons, ending with the fact that he wanted too much sex and she felt that he wouldn't give her enough sex uh to which you know, we've established that's that's a an issue with seems to with be an Bill. ongoing issue for him yeah and uh 
Phil goes, you know, you'll learn something every day. Good Phil stuff in this episode. Apparently, I also agreed while watching this. <laughs> yes, Phil, um, I, I will tell you in a moment when you get to it, when I wrote, uh, Phil is me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Phil just wants to give Murphy's parents some advice. You know, it's a big night for Murphy and it would be real nice of them. They could just pretend to be a family for her. If the Reagans could do it for eight years, they could do it for one day. Exactly. It's not much to ask. No, it's not much to ask. And they don't have the same problems that the Reagans do. Um, So the two of them, they get it. They get it. You know, they've actually been practicing being nice to each other beforehand. And what is sort of a great um, example of their personalities is that they literally divorce themselves and go to different sides of the the bar to find a seat. Uh, Avery goes to the hero table. She goes Mm -hmm. to our table, uh, which has enough seats for everybody. Whereas Bill goes to pretty much a two-person seat. Yeah, he's not good at these things. He's a bit selfish. Not not surprising. I mean, they're both selfish in their own right. And uh, uh, you see where Murphy gets it. Anyway, but Bill is more than Avery, I would say. So Murphy arrives and she comes over to Phil, orders, but tells, tells him that she'll pay for anything that they broke. But, but Phil says, no, no, they, they've been getting along really, really well. And, and he's sure that the last time he looked that her father was spelling out her mother's name in beer nuts. <laughs> was that yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so Murphy is ready to have a nice civilized lunch. She sits down. Bill agrees. Avery compliments Bill. Bill compliments her. It pretty much goes back and forth until it's Bill is struggling to find something nice to say. And, and Avery has to remind him that it's his turn. I love they have a system. They do. To which Murphy goes, God, my parents need crib notes to be nice to each other. You two are pathetic. So Murphy is just, she's had it. You know, why do they even come to Washington? You know, this is their idea of support. Who needs it? Thank you for ruining my day. Pretty much acting like a petulant child. But she, yeah. she's, you know, not wrong. Not wrong. But she, she is reverting back to childhood, I, I mm-hmm. do believe. So she storms out and um, Avery and Bill look at each other. And Avery says, she's been like this ever since we took the horse away. I love these little nuggets of history. Mm-hmm. So we cut to... The offices of FYI, particularly Murphy's office. And we were zooming out on what appears to be young Billy, Billy Jr. sitting in his little, um, little, oh, what are they called? I want to call it a saucer, but they're not that at the time. But the little baby seat. Yeah. Where you can like bounce and sit up. And he is being watched by my dream babysitters of <laughs> Corky and Frank. Frank has a red bucket on his head, a toy phone that's on like the wheels from back in the day. I'm sure it's Fisher Price. Corky mm-hmm. is leaning in with one of those uh, fireman Dalmatian puppets. And I, wrote, I think I had most of these items as a child. Same. Definitely the phone. Definitely had the oh, phone. Oh, yeah. And that particular puppet of like the fire Dalmatian is like the little Dalmatian with the little fireman's helmet on. Like, I feel like that was a very specific 80s, 90s image of the Dalmatian yeah. that lived in the firehouse. It, was it a cartoon, maybe? I, I think know. I think it was also part of a lot of the uh, stop, drop, and roll stuff as uh, we were being gotcha. raised. Like there were always that Dalmatians at fire, firemen or firehouses, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, I think there was part of the uh, fire safety paraphernalia that we would receive that had the. Um, I'm sure that there's a Dalmatian that had a name that I used to know. Someone's going to comment on it, but that was familiar to me. Uh, however, even though I was raised with all the Fisher Price and all those good things, Jim enters the room to partake of this beeping chaos that also to be very clear murphy's office is strewn Mm -hmm. with 
baby gear and toys and teddy bears. And I, I like that in the script, it describes that Jim enters from the bullpen trying trying not to step on all the baby paraphernalia. There are open baby food containers, travel cases of diapers, baby powder, a portable playpen, and toys everywhere. The uh, the props department really got that to a T. And Jim looks down. Also, I just have to say, I know that you already mentioned it, but mm-hmm. Frank is so cute with the bucket on He's his head. So cute it's the best he's so into the toys yeah well you know he has a lot of uh, nieces and nephews because mm-hmm. of all the the you know siblings that he has this is probably the dreamiest i've ever seen frank he's just so comfortable with the baby yeah so jim walks in and he's looking down at the chaos and i love that even in the script it says disapproving <laughs> he says look at all this when i was a tot i had a cradle a playpen and an old wool sock named albert <laughs> which i proceeded to write at Jim speaking my parent parenting aesthetic for the future. <laughs> like honestly, just just give a kid like an empty paper towel roll and we're happy. They no, don't need that much. Most kids like a box. Yeah, he's uh yeah. he's speaking my my future into existence. I want simple things. And he says, now everybody's got these psychologically tested state-of-the-art Scandinavian contraptions and children graduate from high school without knowing the capital of South Dakota. Uh pop quiz, Lauren, do you know the capital of South Dakota? Oh shit. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. I'm sure I wait. only know it because I grew up north of it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, I feel like I do know this. Okay. I'm going to be really annoyed because it's like, yeah. Okay. Um, it's not St. Paul. <laughs> That's no, not even but good job being nearby. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm like going through my head when I had to memorize them as a kid. Mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. I want to be good at this. Oh, um, think. Okay. I'm just going to like be zen. I'm going to take a breath. I'm just going to like take my mind and make it blank. Make it blank. <laughs> I don't know. It I'm a blank. terrible human. No, you're not. You're fine. It is uh, Pierre. Oh. Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten that. <laughs> so back to Jim's freak out. So as he's been saying this, he's been moving his way into the room around the toys and things on the floor and coming around to Murphy's side of the desk. Corky's response is, is to lean into him and go, uh-oh, Uncle Jim needs a little puppet kiss. And leans in with a, with a little Dalmatian. I love Jim's little, little uh, fake little voice that she's doing. It's so cute. It's I love that Jim cute. says, get that thing away from me. We don't know where it's been. <laughs> like, suddenly a very, very uh, factual thing. It's very true. Yes, considering the last time he got close to um, a child of any kind, he got applesauce on his hands. Oh, bananas. I'm sorry, bananas. Bananas. Same kid. So at this point, Miles enters the office. Oh, great. Another brown on wheels. It's a conspiracy, isn't it? (laughs) So the browns are not dependable on wheels. We should not put them in cars. So Miles says that uh, while he appreciates that they're having a good time with baby, it is actually an office and they should probably get to work. So unfortunately for Miles, Frank was busy on the phone with Donald Duck and didn't quite get what uh, Miles was saying to them. And he proceeds to announce to the room that kids love him. He's cute. He's fun. I love to have women bathe me with this massive, all I can say is shit eating grin at Billy. Like it is, he is so into this moment. He's living his high life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then we get Murphy entering. And I just wrote that Murphy enters the office, enters the offices, the bullpen, and then into her office, which has descended into anarchy. So we now have Jim sitting on on the guest chair in the office holding a teddy bear. Miles is in the process of going down the kitty slide in the middle of the office. 
I love it so much. So uh, she says, okay, that's it. Recess is over. Frank apologizes. They got a little carried away with the baby. And this is when Murphy essentially starts to crack. Okay, that's it. Recess is over. God, this place is a mess. Uh, You can't tell me he did this by himself. Come on, you guys. And she says, that's it. I can't take this. I've had it. Two days ago, my life was normal. I was just your average network news superstar minding her own business. Today, I'm a thing to be pitied. My parents are crazy. There's applesauce on my phone. Frank uh, very accurately surmises that lunch apparently didn't go well. No, not well. And she, as she announces, she's not going to the ceremony because why flirt with disaster? Ugh. That, Which, yeah, mm-hmm. Murphy's, that's taken, that's too far. That's, that's Murphy's. The pouting. Just, the pout, it's exactly, that's a pouting moment. That's, well, fine, then, then I will suffer because of you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's no, the big no, no. conversation that they have. So Frank's like, no, you have to go. And she says this great thing about, um, I don't have to do anything. That's the wonderful thing about being a grown-up. I don't have to eat Brussels sprouts. Boo. I don't have to hang up Mm -hmm. my clothes. I don't have to sit through a ceremony with two people who can't stop fighting long enough to celebrate something I've dreamed about my entire life. And Frank has this wonderful line, which is, let me get this straight. You're angry with your parents, so you're going to punish yourself by not getting your award. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's that thing of, I I was just talking to somebody the other day about the idea of, uh, what's the old quote about resentment that uh, it's like drinking poison, expecting the other person to get sick. The other person to die. Yep. Yeah. Although, and it, it's so true. And it's just, she's throwing this big pouting fest. So she doesn't get her award because she wants to punish somebody else. Yeah. Does not work that way. Murphy. It doesn't sweetheart. And thankfully this is when Jim decides to uh, put the teddy bear down and join the adult conversation. He says, darn it all Murphy. So your parents are less than you'd like them to be. Join the club. We all grew up needing something we don't get. Mm. it's such a good, it's just great. It's yeah. exactly the point. Because as, as much as adults still have problems with their adult parents, mm-hmm. there's also a certain point when you do have to kind of move on and get over with, get over it with some good therapy, hopefully. Yes, please. Because you can't continue to let it, or trauma in general, right? You can't continue to let trauma in general, I know it's super hard, to control your present. Mm-hmm. It's, well, and there's it's, there's something to be said. I mean, this is a type of argument that is often uh, used incorrectly. It's used mm-hmm. um, between great, you know, disparate experiences. So, like, if I was abused by my parents and someone who just had, like, a typical dysfunctional family upbringing said that yes. to me, very different. What very I like different. about this conversation is this is all people who grew up in very similar, if some, you know, even with, like, our, our Jewish brethren in the in the gang, similar average dysfunctions yeah on various levels these are people who did not go through massive traumas and therefore it's not someone it's not a white person telling a black person just get over it you don't understand like we all have something yes what i like is that it is a like mind a like experience telling the other one hey you have to suck it up a little bit yeah it's very hard for me to explain without giving specific examples Mm -hmm. so i apologize Mm -hmm. um but an example of something that I said in therapy recently <laughs> was, I don't want to talk about this person, not because I don't want to talk about them, because I don't want to keep giving them um, agency over my life mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. Meaning that me to continue to obsess over this or continue to blame my parents and not move forward. And mm-hmm. when I say my parents, I'm talking about Murphy, I'm not talking about myself. Yep. Uh, in general, you're giving, you're letting that person and what they did to you occupy your present when all that is doing is giving them 
the importance and not yourself. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I, I will say back to your uh, previous comment about uh, moving past trauma, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, without getting too much of my own personal stuff, though I have alluded to this before, um, today is actually when we're recording this, not when this is dropping, but to the day we're recording this is actually the anniversary of a um, significant traumatic experience in my life. Um, the only reason I was able to come out on the other side of it is one, therapy, uh, but also... Yeah, that idea of there. once you're in a position where you can release the agency and power that something else has over you is the moment that you get your life back. And holding on to something, if it is as simple as a childhood resentment that you can put into perspective like this, thank goodness for people like Frank and Jim and the gang who are able to say, girl, you didn't have it that bad. The fact that you have the opportunity to put something behind you and move on is a gift. And sometimes you have someone like Frank who has his own issues, whereas he might not be able to see it in himself, but he can do it to Murphy. And the other way around, you know, sometimes you need the perspective of a friend who is outside of it, Mm-hmm. who has similar experiences, but it's harder when it's yourself. Mm-hmm. It's always well, harder when it's yourself. Specifically what just happens next in this episode. So Frank responds to Jim by saying, yeah, like me and my parents. When you're in the middle of seven kids, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle. They were always leaving me in department stores, in amusement parks. The first few times I chalked it up to coincidence, but after a while, I don't care how healthy you are, you think, hey, there's a pattern here. So so because of this, I now want a spin-off flashback Home Alone type movie. Oh, yes. With Frank Fontana. Frank just in a mall. Yeah. <laughs> or in the Plaza Hotel. But not with Donald Trump. But still with Tim Curry. Yes. So Jim responds with his own example, which is that the biggest show of affection he ever got from his father was a firm handshake. You think I'm stiff. Compared to him, I'm Pinky Lee. I just realized that maybe we should say who this was because I always heard this joke as a kid and I'm realizing as we're doing this, I don't think I remember who Pinky Lee was. Oh, okay. Um, I just know this as a joke in television when I was a kid. Do you know who he was? I did. I mean, I know enough to laugh at the reference. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Isn't that interesting, right? Mm -hmm. We we know enough to laugh at the reference and get it in context. Mm -hmm. But I realized just now, wait, I technically don't really know who he was. So he was a a burlesque comic, but he was the host of a children's television program in the Mm -hmm. early 50s. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, and truly, as long as you understand the comparison being made and the the sound of the name Pinky Lee, you get the joke. It's just funny. Yeah, I love it. Um, And so they, you know, they make a, a really good point that she earned this award and and I love Frank says, you've earned, the, you've earned that award. And when you get up there tonight to accept it, this side of, of the family is going to be there cheering for you. And that goes back to the, uh, to the first part of the episode, which I don't think um, I made clear when I was recapping, which is that um, Murphy, before Corky says the comment about, but what about your real family? Murphy makes a comment that you are all the closest thing I have to family here. And that's why she wants them all to be there. Yeah. So I love that Frank brings that back to this side of the family is going to be there cheering for you. Yeah. And Murphy's really touched. And she says, you know, you guys are really something. It means a lot to a lot to me to know I can count on you when the chips are down. And Corky's like, you bet. And Miles like, absolutely. And Jim, oh, no. And they, they make all this <laughs> thing. Frank says, we're with you. And then Corky starts to smell the Dalmatian puppy and says, oh, oh, I think the baby needs to be changed. And all at once, and you can even see in the script, all at once, they all just ditch her right then <laughs> and run out of the office. <laughs> Oh, poor Murphy. Poor Always Murphy. left with the mess to clean up. True. Mm-hmm. 
So we go to one of my favorite scenes in the series. Oh. So we interrupt this episode for breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Songs that we can sing that we don't have the rights for. No, it's stupid. So break, breaking news. Uh, we have been corrected by the great Diane English. The, the one person that can truly always correct us always. with no problems. Corrections are welcome. But we it, them. it is a correction that is blowing my mind. Don't know uh -huh. about you, Jesse. Uh, but apparently, uh, we were wrong. And um, so was most of the internet. Most of the internet, every database, the Emmy website, um, Jay Thomas's biography on his own website, mm -hmm. uh, every article I've ever read about him since 1989. He does not have two Emmys. The confusion before in Darren McGavin's obituary is that he did win the Emmy because Diane saw him win the Emmy. Mm -hmm. So we got this lovely email from Diane. Thank you so much, Diane, which we thanked her, of course, but thank you for letting us know because this is this is the inside information that you listen for the podcast for. This is the trivia we live for. So we've talked about in the past, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse, mm -hmm. that the guest actor category is given away at the Creative Arts Awards, which does not happen during the broadcast. I don't remember if we've talked about this, but okay. I know I've heard this before. It is usually the, the week before the Saturday before. I'm not sure when it was back then, but it's not usually the same day and definitely not during the broadcast. So apparently Diane said that, that Darren didn't realize that. And so he didn't show up. So when he won, Jay came on stage and accepted it for him and then did a speech, uh, which she said was hilarious as if he had won. Yeah, you know, like you do. There you go. Jay Thomas is a big old liar. Big old liar. <laughs> but I have to laugh because I... It sounds like something he It do. feels like a very Jay Thomas move. <laughs> a very Jerry Gold thing as well. But I, uh -huh. I, I kind of wonder if he just didn't correct people. I think so. I'm, I'm going to put the screen cap from the Emmy website. Um, so for any confusion, uh, it, was the, it was Darren's obituary on the Emmy website that said that he had won. But the actual listing of winners mm -hmm. says it's Jay. So mystery solved. Uh, we did it. We did it, team. We did. Mind blown. Thank you, Diane. And um, back to the episode. Back to Murphy's townhouse. Uh, Murphy is on the phone in this fabulous, would you say it's velvet? It looks right? velveteen. I would say it, it definitely has a texture. Okay. Mm -hmm. Black dress. This is an interesting um, scene as well because um, I've referenced before, I think, this behind the scenes I used to watch. Mm -hmm. And Barnett Kelman referred to in that sort of behind the scenes that he felt that Murphy Brown walked like Groucho because Candace Bergen walked like Groucho. Mm -hmm. And they showed this scene. Because <laughs> at one point she walks up to the baby and kind of puts her hands on her hips and like looks at and like sort of jaunts her body out. Mm -hmm. It's, it's pretty great physical comedy, even if it's natural to someone. Um, it's it's pretty hilarious. And again, like this episode, I think sort of just reminds you like Candace Bergen is super comfortable. She is Murphy Brown now. Mm -hmm. This is the Murphy Brown. And we've seen her for a while, but this is a great example of the Murphy Brown we will now see through the end of the series and into the revival. Oh, definitely. Uh, so so Murphy is upset because the babysitter has not arrived yet pretty much. You know, and she, she called two days ago and the baby's crying and she calls for her mother, but her mother isn't ready. And she calls <laughs> for her dad, but he's not ready yet. So Murphy is pretty much, you know left alone with the baby who she really only knows how to converse with like an adult 
at the moment. Murphy uh, looks at the, walks up to the baby and <laughs> and goes, "What am I supposed to do? Take you to the party and check you?" And I love. She goes, "Try and look like a hat." She's so cute with him. <laughs> she really is, but she is pretty much, you know, acting like uh, an adult right now. Um, and she begins to lecture her baby brother. Mm-hmm. Has he ever heard of Gloria Steinem? Does the name Betty for Dan ring a bell? So, so Murphy just stares at him and she goes, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not picking you up. You know, she, she knows the kind of man that he is, you know. Uh, let, let her be the first woman to tell you that. She knows his type. So she's pretty much giving her baby brother a, a feminist lecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, for crying and she calls for her father and her father's on the phone she calls for her mother she's not dressed yet so she's she's really sort of stuck with this baby and the next thing we know Murphy is literally holding the baby and singing My Guy by Mary Wells and really sort of you know get, getting into it and enjoying it and um, beginning to converse with her baby brother like the baby that he is. It's so cute. It's super, super cute. And she's like, not bad for a beginner. And she apologizes for leading. You know, she's sorry that's just the kind of woman that she is. Mm-hmm. And she begins to teach her baby brother about what to do on a first date. You, you got to start young, I guess. Mm-hmm. First of all, bring flowers. Just because we marched on Washington a few times doesn't mean we don't like roses now and then. That's true. Let's balance that feminism. You can have it all. Absolutely. Also, she knows uh, by a man, by his uh, taste in shoes, pretty much kills it for her. Mm-hmm. I believe later on, um, she tells Avery that it's about the belt that a man... No, I think Avery has an issue with belts. Yes. And then uh, Murphy starts to kind of coo with Billy. Now she's fully sort of gone the whole gamut from acting like an adult to treating him like the little adorable child that he is. To which uh, Bill enters and, uh, and sees this. This kind of sort of startles Murphy. I think, you know, she she was a little more comfortable because she probably thought that it was all happening in private. Mm-hmm. He goes, uh, pretty neat, isn't it? She goes, yeah, pretty neat. And and there's a sort of beautiful moment where he acknowledges to Murphy that, you know, he missed all this with her. And they they sit down. He tells her this story. You know, there was this one particular day when he was uh, opening two offices at the same time in Philadelphia and New York. Um, his paper had gone from a little supermarket throwaway to a big time publication. Uh, and he got home just sort of reeling from it. He flopped down on the couch and Murphy came in and kissed him and said, daddy, I'm glad you're happy. Hmm. And Murphy, and Murphy is just staring at him this entire time while he's giving this speech. And then Avery comes in, but she stops because she sees that they're having this moment and she kind of listens at the door of the den. I love it. It's the way she lingers there is so tender. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's this great moment, I think, for the two of them, where even though Bill and Avery are both quite childish and focused on winning, it's that great moment when you see the mother emerge. Yeah. And like, it's about her knowing what her daughter needs in this moment, that it's not about her. Yeah. It's really beautiful. It's so like Colleen's body language in this moment and her face when they cut to her is so beautiful and it shows why she was the actress she was yeah and like i said like this is one of my favorite moments in the Mm. entire series um and uh he tells her that murphy went off to bed and then he noticed a couple of small plates and a a half-eaten piece of chocolate cake and he realized that it was her 16th birthday and the way that darren goes i had completely forgotten is so beautiful 
And Murphy nods that she remembers. I love just the simple, it's such a simple writing thing, but he says he had forgotten and she says, I remember. Yeah. That like juxtaposition. Yeah, she's finally seeing probably what was a very distinct memory in her life Mm -hmm. from the other side, which we very rarely get to see. And he confesses to her that he he tried to go to her room. And what's great about this monologue, it's very short, it's long, short sentences, you know? Mm -hmm. It's... It's, but I stopped, period. Cold feet, period. The way he says cold feet. Yeah. He's an incredible actor. He's a wonderful actor. And here I was running a newspaper, but I had no idea what to say to my own daughter. And they cut to Colleen's face. I know. And and what's great is, is Murphy goes, I, I didn't know that. You know, this sort of revelation. And and I think it's two things. You know, I think it's it's one understanding, like I said, from the other point of view, something that deeply affected you. Mm -hmm. But also, for some people, it's very hard to see their parents as adults Mm -hmm. or as real people who have the same fears and um, insecurities that that we do. And and they also had, you know, maybe um, messed up childhoods or Mm -hmm. parents that didn't give them what they needed. We're all little confused balls of, of... things wanting love you know that uh, I think that's a very important thing for a child to be able to understand that about their parent and so I I think this is very sort of very multi-layered I would say from we are all somebody's kid exactly even if we didn't know them exactly just because you are older doesn't mean that you all of a sudden have to know everything or get over everything um, I think you know as much as kids need to be understanding about I mean, parents have to be understanding about their kids. Kids at a certain age also have to be more understanding mm-hmm. about their parents. But that's a whole other thing. So going back, yeah, and he says that there's not much that he would do different in life. Uh, maybe he, you know, wouldn't have bought eight thousand shares of Exxon. Oh. Second, that's the second or third Exxon joke, we're, right? We're back to Exxon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the, Exxon is like the Dan Quayle of season two. I think I love it. Roast yeah. Down. So he, he pretty much is saying what we kind of all figured is that, you know, Bill Jr. is kind of his second chance. And, and this time he doesn't intend to miss it. I do have to say, as yeah. a, um, not to go back again to my opportunity to see Elizabeth Warren's town hall, but yes. something she spoke of um, that has always resonated with me is that she was a, like myself, another late in life baby, mm-hmm. much like Bill Jr. And there's a very unique experience you have when you're the late in life baby that you do hear comments like this about yourself. Mm. Uh, and this is something that I have heard growing up about how I was as someone who was born into a family that had teenagers. And then I come along, I have heard comments from various members of my family about how I was the next chance and the chance to do it again. Aww, that's a lot of pressure. I never felt the pressure. I maybe because I was, oh, good. I didn't process it the way I did, but there is something very unique about that. And about for me that I, it, for Bill in this moment and for my own family, the way that that humanizes Mm. Is the idea of like how many people don't don't get that chance? How many people? Yeah. How many parents who are just kids themselves trying to figure it out, yeah, trying to do right. the difference that there's different the same way that we got something we didn't there's something we didn't get, and so we want to give that to our kid, and now it's our mm. chance, or that we didn't do this right because we're all imperfect. And that idea of like what a what a beautiful moment that is for him to be able to articulate that idea yeah. that you might get to have a second chance, and not that it's at the expense of the older kid, which is something that yeah. I, you know Murphy is processing. But also the fact that, like, what a gift for a human being to be able to realize that about themselves and apply themselves in this way. Yeah. No, it's such a beautiful mm-hmm. moment. And then uh, mirroring what the story that Bill told, 
Murphy kisses him on the cheek and says, <laughs> I'm glad you're happy, Daddy. Oh, it kills me. It's so beautiful. It kills me. Well, and it's such a beautiful moment. And what I love is that uh, Avery realizes that that's the moment to enter. <laughs> yes. And what's great in the script, it says, Avery decides to let her presence be known. Yes, which is literally what happens on screen. Yeah. She, you, it is... I decide to let my presence be known. And what I do love that she does, she in no way acknowledges that she was standing there. Because yet again, it's not... She. What I love about this, it's so true to character and it's such a brilliant, caring move, is that in not letting them know that she was listening the whole time, she doesn't make it about her. Mm -hmm. But the way she does so is by making it about her in a joking form. So she walks in and says, well, I've spent three hours getting ready and I think it was worth the wait, don't you? And swans into the room. <laughs> and I love that Murphy goes, whoa, mother, hot stuff. So it was worth it, everyone. She it is totally in a deep green velvet dress with mm-hmm. a big belt on it with a like plaid. It feels very festive since it's we're getting to the holiday season. This like plaid mm-hmm. green ribbon in her hair that's like got all these great folds to it. And yeah, Murphy calls her hot stuff. Even Bill's like, whoa. And I just want to say kudos to the empowered woman that is Avery Brown, that not only does she say thank you, and she says, I think so, to being called hot stuff. Like, love yourself. She knows. Mm -hmm. She doesn't apologize for knowing. She says thank you and then agrees. And I just love that this is the example of a fierce woman that we're putting on screen, that you can know you're hot, that you don't need someone to tell you, but you do appreciate that they're acknowledging what you already know. Also, what I think is a nice little subtle detail is that as she makes it about herself, Bill has a moment to turn away mm-hmm. and it's, he's crying, you know, to, to, to make himself mm-hmm. presentable and keep, keep you know, any sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I want to say keep the faith, but that's not what I mean. Save face. Save face. Thank mm-hmm. you. That, And I, I kind of wonder now as you're talking, if maybe she did that on purpose. I think I, that's that's what I meant by it. I think she 100% yeah. does it on purpose and that if she was going to be selfish, she would have walked in and acknowledged that moment to be a part of it. And instead, she gave gave them both a measure of care by walking in and giving them the distraction out of it that they both need because they are both proud people. And this is a show of emotion that none of them do well. And I think mm-hmm. her knowing that, knowing her ex-husband, knowing her child, being able to swan in and give this moment of drama that looks completely ridiculous and selfish, but truly is the most selfless thing she could have done in that moment. Yeah. It's um, it's beautiful. It's really quite beautiful. It's as beautiful as she is. Avery. Avery. So Murphy stands up and uh, uh, clearly appreciating the reprieve, uh, says that she's going to ask them a loaded question. If she was to go upstairs and fix her hair and makeup... Could they consider the living room a demilitarized zone? (laughs) (laughs) And Avery laughs and says, Murphy, give him a little credit. You make it sound like we don't do anything but fight. Murphy says, my mistake. I must have done something bad in a previous life, like invented culottes as she makes her way up the stairs. If I may say, um, Mm -hmm. this is technically a joke that shows up in the revival. So I I, I think that we can assume that Diane English does not like culottes. And Mm -hmm. I'm with her on that. I love a culotte. They're so comfy. I can't pull them off because I don't think they're friendly to most body types, but I do find them very comfortable. I'm okay if it's like a little bit of an ankle, but when it's like the, are the are, wait, oh, wait a second, maybe I'm confused. If it's higher up, are those palazzo pants? Uh, that's a different design history. They're a similar movement, but a different concept. I think I don't like palazzo pants. <laughs> I think the problem with culottes is they tend to uh, fit on the thigh and then flare out, which makes people look wider in all the places they don't want to. What are the pants that Mary Tyler Moore wears on the Dick Van Dyke show? I cannot visualize it. 
Capri pants. I like Capri pants. Yeah, I mean, I like Capri pants because they make me think of they're pedal pushers. They're like cigarette pants. They fit it. Culottes are not a flattering shape, and their length is just always awkward. It just makes you look wider and shorter. I'm I'm Googling culottes. Oh, yes, I hate them. Oh, my God, I was correct. These are these are too wide. They're terrible, but so comfortable. So if I'm around the house, I will wear some, some culottes, but I will not buy them because that's the only place I'd wear them. <laughs> but there are a couple ones that aren't as wide at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I feel like I once owned a pair of culottes, but the ones that look like you could, I don't know, put a couple of wine bottles in there... Did a little too much. Which I would buy for that reason. Oh, my God. That's what we should just do. We should invent cool-up pants that have a, pe- a little thing in it for your wine bottle. It's for sneaking the wine into the public park in the summers. I'm so glad that we just invented this awesome thing that we absolutely could We're sell. geniuses. We are. So Avery and Bill have been left in the living room, the demilitarized living room. And Avery makes her way over to the crib where little Billy is sitting. She looks down at the baby and says that it's been a long time since she's been around one of these. To which Bill fondly says it brings back a lot of memories. And she smiles down. She says, yes, there were a few good ones. And she hates to admit it, but it wasn't all bad. And I love this conversation that they have because he brings up that they were too young to be married. Yeah. And she says, yeah, things are different now. We would have lived together. And they they have this wonderful understanding. This is kind of what we've all been craving this entire episode. And then he turns around and says that he still would have married her. Because that's one hell of a kid that they raised. They must have done Mm. something right. And Avery sits down and goes, I wonder what that was. And he then gives her one of my favorite compliments that you can give a woman. Mm-hmm. And he says, she's a handsome woman. Mm-hmm. I love calling women handsome. It is a long lost phrase, but it is so, it's, it's so appreciative of the whole woman. It's not about being delicate. It's not about, like, and I love calling other women handsome. And that truly is what she is. And it used to be a gender neutral term. I'm just putting that out there. And he means it. Oh, yeah. And it is. it is Colleen Dewhurst is a handsome woman. Mm-hmm. It is the perfect way to describe her. It, it acknowledges her power and her presence. It's just, and what I love is that it is, it is truly a gender equalizing compliment. The idea yeah. that, you, that you would call a woman handsome gives her this power and authority in her attractiveness that is not just within a, a gender norm. And yeah. I, I wonder when that separated. I mean, we won't. I, I want to find that after we're done with this. Mm-hmm. I want to find out when when that because you know how much we both love language. Uh-huh. When that when that became a separation where all of a sudden it had to be one gender or the other was mm-hmm. handsome. Well, there's a whole TED talk that I will send you where they talk about in different Ooh, languages yes. how they um, how they break apart uh, the gender in the since we don't have gendered nouns yeah, uh, in yeah. English we don't have that but how like a bridge in Spanish will be described per the gender nouns like elegant and beautiful or uh, German oh, or no, I think in German it's feminine so they say elegant and beautiful about a bridge but in Spanish mm-hmm. they say it's strong and and long like all these like male descriptors Ooh. it's oh, fascinating I'd love to see that I want to go back mm-hmm. for a second because yeah. one of my favorite deliveries um, when Bill says that they were too young to get married and Avery says it would be different you know they they would live together this time and then she goes You'd be paying palimony. And she does something. <laughs> she, she like rub her fingers together. She mm-hmm. does something with her fingers. And it's not a gesture of money. It's just a sort of like, I'm fabulous. It's kind wonderful. of a thing. I just, I can't even describe what she does with her fingers in the, in the low of the voice. Oh, and, yeah. And they laugh at that. Exactly. There's this like low chuckle to it. And definitely it's like this like almost like evil villainess, like Cruella de Vil moment with her fingers. That is, it also implies that like she would have won the legal fight for him to have to pay yeah, that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> 
And that's, you know, that in the script is when they, you know, he he looks at her and really is like, you know, you're a handsome woman. You know, there mm-hmm. it, it, this this scene is great because there's a build to it. It's it's realistic, it's funny, it's dramatic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's when, you know, they they have that laughing moment where he, you know, feels open to tell her how handsome she is. Yes. Well, and it's you get why they were into each other in a very yeah. similar way where you get why Murphy's with Jake. You get why Murphy's with Jerry. Like there is this chemistry that they have where you're like oh yeah no they love messing with each other like this yeah. used to be the sexy thing and yeah, I mean she she knows he's flirting with her oh yeah and she loves it <laughs> like I love yeah. it when he says she's handsome she just looks shocked and then pleased yeah. in one moment and he says you mm-hmm. always have been you always will be she goes Bill Brown are you flirting with me a married man not that this ever stopped you <laughs> <laughs> and what I like is like they're able this is when they're able to banter without getting actually offended yeah. And he says, and then they start bringing up all the places they've had sex. Yep, yep. And he goes, "Come on, Avery. We've had a lot of memorable moments together." And they talk about the pier. And then she says, "The back seat of your old Chevy." And this is the moment I go, "Wait, where is Karen in this moment?" Because he does this little like cough, grunt, look over his shoulder at the staircase. Oh, I thought that was to Murphy because Karen's. No, I know, I know that it was to Murphy because oh, she's oh, at the gotcha. okay. But I just all of a sudden was like, "Wait, where did Karen go?" <laughs> wait, a poor Karen. Oh, I get it. You're just like, oh, wait, I forgot he has a wife. I forgot Karen. Uh, because he does, he looks awkward, looks up the stairs. I'm like, oh, it's to Murphy. But also, where is Karen? And then he brings up their wedding night and he mentions the beautiful song Stardust, which clearly was their song, mm-hmm. still makes him go crazy. And he just fluidly stands up and starts sing humming it, kind of dancing in place, reaches out his hand. It's just the most romantic thing. And she mm-hmm. takes his hand and they start singing along and they dance. And she has this just delicious raspy alto voice. And it's just, I like, we're both swaying. You can't see us, but we're both swaying as I talk about this because it's just wonderful. And he dips her and their faces are so close. And he says, so you think we can bury that old hatchet someplace other than my crotch for one night? <laughs> and she, she does that delicious low laugh that she has and says, yes, it may be time. And they have the sweetest platonic kiss it is just this like acknowledgement of history this sweet peck right as murphy is entering at the top of the stairs saying that she doesn't like it it's too quiet as if the the sitter has shown up and in the process they just disengage he straightens his suit she touches and fixes her hair yeah, I love that they're like, no, 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 we haven't. No, 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 no. And they no, don't make it too awkward. No, of course not. Yeah, they don't call attention to it. They just like fix themselves as if nothing, nothing happened. And like so many other choices could have been made for a moment like that. But the fact that this kiss is just an acknowledgement, a sweet acknowledgement of history and respect. I just love that choice. I love the way they play it. They don't make her any more suspicious than she was of the quiet. And then I love it. She says, uh, the sitter asked her if they if she had a Nintendo set. Uh, she should have said yes. Why can't anything be easy? Oh, Nintendo reminds me of so many memories. Oh, I love a Nintendo. Mm-hmm. And then the great hero of all heroes, Eldon arrives through the front door. Hey there, Brown family. Walks his way in. And Murphy does this double, like, Eldon. Eldon. And he says, oh, he's here to work on the ceiling. He had a block, but he's you know, working his way through a breakthrough. Oh, goes, wait, you skipped my favorite part is that when she says, Eldon, Eldon, he goes, that's my name. Don't wear it that's out. That's my name. Don't wear it out. I think I um, moved on past that since we all said it in grade school. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and after he says, you know, he's here to work on the ceiling, she's like, but are you good with babies? 
and staring fixedly at the crib. And he's like, oh, he's great with babies. And she immediately is like, great, you're watching the baby. We're leaving. She grabs the contact info, hands it to him, heading out the door. I love babies and babies love me. Bill's like, wait, I'm not going to just leave my baby with this guy. He has earrings. To which Avery very smoothly just turns and goes, so what? You have the Liberty Bell tattooed on your behind. And I thought this, I had a brief moment where I was like, is this going to be the beginning of the end again? And he turns around and goes, you told me you liked that. I lied. And they start, they usher out and Murphy's like, no, nope, we're going, we're picking up our things, we're putting on our coats, we're getting in the car. And Bill announces that he's driving. Our final, our final Brown to, to drive in this episode. And Avery says it's over her dead body because she swore she'd never ride with him again. And he's, well, he tells her she's welcome to walk. And she turns back to him and says, well, with your sense of direction, well, I'll get there sooner. And what, in the best exit, he laughs, gives her like a little football tap of the butt and says, still wearing that iron girdle, huh? And they're off. Can I ask real quick, do you find that this kind of fighting, though, is a little different than before? No, that's the whole point. This is the same, this is, this is the fighting I was talking about where this is the good fighting. Yeah, yeah. We're okay, not being good. mean to each other. Because this is the this fun section, fighting that they used to do all the time right, that they right? enjoyed. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So good. I'm glad not just me, because I feel like this section also shows, oh, this is where Murphy gets it. Exactly. Well that's why I that's why I love that like the Liberty Bell is like, oh no, are we going backwards? And nope, we're still we're just now in the comfortable play fighting. Yeah, because this is the same kind of foreplay that Murphy likes. Exactly. As well. And this is what yeah. I think for her, this is what she grew up idealizing. Was when oh, things yeah, were good in true. her family, that's what it looked like. But also she that's what she sees as a relationship yeah. is people who fight to banter yeah. and it's not always a good thing. And her good memories of that are that. Like that's what they looked like when they were good. It does make me really wish that I could be just next to them at the table for this entire award ceremony they're going to on this note because you can just imagine the way they're heckling quietly to each other. Yes. And they all exit out the front door and then we get our preview, our early preview of Eldon with baby Avery. Yes. It just made me so happy. That whole thing about like, yeah, going back and watching things in hindsight. Just like, mm-hmm. oh, this is this is when we all knew it was going to be okay with baby yeah. Avery. And Eldon is picking up the boy and he says, hi, I'm Eldon. What do you want to be when you grow up? A painter. And he walks him around. It's like, I want, he wants to show him some work he's been doing. And he walks him over. And instead of pointing out the ceiling, he walks him over to the actual walls yeah. of the of the of the home and says now look this is good. and he tells him this is what good painting is like no bubbles no tape lines do you see it that's called a matte finish can you say matte finish and starts walking him and we just fade out on eldon walking him around the home showing him what good painting looks like yeah as we hear one of the most famous uh or one one of the i should say but more towards a modern audience recording of Stardust. Oh, do you want to talk about Stardust? I'm going to talk about Stardust. Oh. So Stardust, even though some people will spell it as one word, mm-hmm. is actually technically two words. Mm-hmm. Stardust. Stardust, one word, is a wonderful novel written by Neil Gaiman. Oh, yes, I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. I have not read it. Paul McCartney has said that Stardust is the one song he wished that he had written. Oh, dreamy. I, as a child, 
first knew this song because it's one of Bette Midler's favorite songs. And she's a big fan of the uh, composer. And I say that because there are several stages to the song, which are fascinating. Mm -hmm. The original song uh, written by Hoagie Carmichael without the lyrics was just an instrumental, which is still beautiful. Mm -hmm. Later on, the lyrics were added, which I will go into in a moment. Bette Midler... Uh, has a fireplace uh, in, I don't know if she still has this home, but when, she, when in the 90s, a home in California. And she had the lyrics from Stardust engraved sort of on the opening of this hearth. Because mm-hmm. it's her favorite song. And so that's how I first knew this song. And then also learned more about Hoagie Carmichael. But honestly, until this podcast, I really did not know anything about Hoagie Hoagie Carmichael, I realized. (laughs) Thought he was Jewish. He's not. Hoagie, also his real name. Not a a made up name. It's a nickname. He was born Hoagland Howard Carmichael. The lyrics, by the way, that she had on the hearth are, and now the purple dusk of twilight time steals across the meadows of my heart, Mm. which is beautiful. John Edward Hayes, who's the curator of the American Music for the Smithsonian Institute, has called the song the most recorded song in the history of the world. And that right there qualifies as the song of the century, of course, Mm -hmm. the 20th century. It was recorded more than 13,000 times as of uh, 2008, by the way, um, beginning as an instrumental in 1927, as I mentioned. So the song became quite popular. Um, it was far more quick and, and tempoed in pace. So it was slowed down in 1929 when Mitchell Parrish added lyrics. And I find it very interesting because everyone always refers to the song as a Hoagie Carmichael song. So I was shocked to find out that someone else had written the lyrics Yeah, when people talk about the lyrics being so brilliant. And I was a little sad about that, that this person perhaps has been lost. Now, Mitchell Parrish also helped write lyrics to songs like Sophisticated Lady, <laughs> which was, a, yeah, this is a Duke yeah. Ellington jazz classic in 1932. That's a good mind. Also worked on other Carmichael songs, including Moonlight Serenade. And he adapted the English version of Valare. Dang. Interesting, right? Yeah. And they both came from completely different worlds. You know, Carmichael was born in Bloomfield, Indiana, and really kind of, you know, became the um, example of the American songwriter from the salt of the earth kind of a guy. Whereas Michael Parrish, who originally was born Michael Heyman, and I hope I say this right, Pashalinsky, now, some people say that he was an immigrant from Lithuania, and some mm-hmm. say he was born here. But still, was either born here at, you know, or came over when he was one years old. Gotcha. People are not actually sure which is right. But let's just say a Jewish Lithuanian immigrant. Now, Kogi Carmichael was considered the most successful Tin Pan Alley writer of his his of the 20th century, as I've sort of already alluded to. Mm-hmm. And then let's just say that Michael Parrish was also one of the, you know, influential lyricists. Other songs that you may know from Hoagie Carmichael, Heart and Soul. Oh, my, really? Yes. Wow. Now, and the interesting thing about Heart and Soul is that technically the version that we know when people play two-sided piano is a little bit fudged. It's not the exact thing, but it's the opening of Heart and Soul. There are lyrics to it. It's a very popular song. Songs you may know are Georgia On My Mind, Up a Lazy River. Oh. And uh, I feel like people probably know Two Sleepy People from the soundtrack of A League of Your Own. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's definitely mine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, this version that you were going to talk to a little bit about is sung by Nat King Cole. So today, the Nat King Cole version is really sort of the most known version. It's from 1957. 
But it's not what you think. It's It wasn't at the time of this episode in 1989, perhaps not really the most famous version. Mm. Maybe for people who grew up in the 50s, like Diane, it would be, right? Mm -hmm. But most people feel that the reason this version has become the most known version today in the 21st century is because of the 1993 film Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. So that was interesting, too, because you and I would have grown up with this being mm -hmm. the popular version. And that's the assumption. Oh, well, that's why Diane used it. Not necessarily. This was a couple of years later. So I find that quite fascinating. Now, we don't have time to talk about Hoagie Carmichael's entire career. Mm -hmm. He appeared in movies. Um, a lot of his songs were lost, unfortunately, because he did them in films. And the studio wouldn't let them put it on airplay, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So they didn't become as popular. I definitely recommend reading more about Hoagie Carmichael. He was an amazing songwriter and really helped shape, I think, music in the 20th century. Yeah. And now Jesse is going to give us a little background on the amazing Nat King Cole. Oh, Nat King Cole. I, I'm sure like most people grew up feeling like he was very special to me because he was you know, one of the greatest performers of a generation, let alone the 20th century. This last year of 2019 was 100 years from his birth. So he was born on St. Patrick's Day in 1919, oh. uh, 100 years ago of this last year. Uh, he sold more than 50 million records. He definitely pushed jazz piano in a new direction and is credited for paving the way for later generations of performers. And he just, as a, as an artist, like he topped the charts year after year after year after year. And what's so interesting that he is so now well known for his voice along with jazz piano is that he was never trained as a singer. Oh, wow. That was not something that was part of him. So Nat, as we all, you know, very personally know him, was born Nathaniel Adams Cole in Montgomery, Alabama on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 1919. He was later raised, however, in my new home of Chicago. Uh, his mother taught him to play the piano when he was four. And at 15, he dropped out of high school to lead his own bands. Uh, he is... Uh, his entire career credited his idol, Earl Hines, uh, for being his greatest influence. Um, we don't have time to talk about the great Earl Hines, but definitely go check them out. By the time he was 18, Cole was living in Los Angeles. He was married and he was fronting a little nightclub act called the King Cole Trio. Uh, it would feature guitar, bass and piano, but not a lot of vocals which is something I find very interesting. Um, they were known for having hit after hit after hit. Um, he became very popular as its leader. Um, some of their track listings include uh, Street Lorraine, Embraceable You, uh, What Is This Thing Called Love? So we have the Gershwins, we have Cole Porter. Uh, they have, I believe, four volumes of tracks that they did as a group. Oh, wow. So many of these tracks you would know it would take me forever to list them all. <laughs> but it's a lot of classics, a lot of things that Nat later became known for. In 1946, the King Cole Trio landed a national radio show, the first of its kind to be hosted by an African-American musician. And that's in 1946. That's huge and very early. Wow. Yeah. I mean, not for the general history, but for them, that's long before the civil rights movement. Over time, he began to play less jazz and sing more ballads. Oh. Which is how a lot of us know him. So by the 1950s, yeah. his repertoire was mostly love songs, and they were backed by strings. I, there's a really interesting quote that he gave a Swiss television reporter that he was simply giving the fans what they wanted. Mm. And he says, it's not a case of my personal likes. I try to please as many people as I possibly can. And if I find that people like certain things, I try to give them what they like. And that's good business, too, you see. That's what he ends up with, you see. It, that, that's very of his generation. And that's good business, too, you see. So he is, uh, was often, uh, often told people that he saw himself as an entertainment entertainer, not as an activist. However, 
In April, on April 10th, 1956, his performance in Alabama became a crucial moment in race relations. So he went down to the South to, par- to perform with an interracial band, which was, as yeah, I'm sure you can imagine, pretty bold and offensive to a lot of people. But then he agreed to play for segregated audiences, which then offended his black audience. So he finally agreed to play a 10 p.m. show at the Birmingham Municipal Auditorium for black audiences and an early show for white audiences. That happened mm. to attract a group of local white supremacists. Shocking. Oh, no. uh, so Daniel Mark Epstein, uh, he wrote the uh, 1999 biography, Nat King Cole, is quoted a lot in articles about him. So Epstein shared that the white, the white Citizens Council of Alabama had a plot to kidnap Cole from the theater. The plot failed, but the hoodlums... I love how he called him hoodlums, did storm the stage, break up the performance, and they knocked Nat Cole off the piano bench and injured his back. <gasps> yeah, people suck. Was this something that, did he have a back injury for the rest of his life? I believe so. I feel like I heard mm-hmm. this. I didn't know when it happened. Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh, that's awful. Yeah. So he was treated in his dressing room by a doctor, um, and he returned to the stage for the late show for the black audience. The incident made national news. And seven months later, Cole became the first major African-American musician to host a national television variety show. Yay. And that is what a lot of us know as the Nat King Cole show. What's interesting. It had a massive audience, but no national sponsor would back the show because they were afraid of alienating Southern viewers, which sadly Mm. does not sound that different from our current political climate, just with some adjustments. NBC started losing money and Cole canceled the weekly program after a little more than a year. Mm. Uh, but at this point, he was a household name. He was celebrated across the racial lines. And uh, what Epstein says was the great gift of his charisma. Yeah. Uh, they say they, he, there was just so much. And this is something we all acknowledge. There's so much passion in his voice and so much intelligence that he was able to transcend yeah. the color barrier. It's so amazing to me that he didn't start off as a singer. Right? Because it's just his, his voice. voice. His, what a lot of people talk about oh. is the fact that he had perfect pitch and a pure tone. I want to sing L- Love Now. I know. L oh. is for... Uh, I just, I oh, you know, unforgettable, oh. all that good stuff. One of my favorite yeah. memories growing up of Nat King Cole is, uh, is him as one of the narrators in Cat Baloo. And the way that, um, oh. if you have not watched that movie, everyone go find it. It's amazing. No, um, I have not seen it. Oh, it's... Oh, we'll talk. It's wonderful. It's hilarious. It's a hilarious okay. Western starring Lee Marvin as one and Jane Fonda. Oh, that's why I've heard of mm-hmm. it. Jane Fonda's in it. Okay. It's hysterical. So unfortunately, as many of us know, Cole did not live long enough to see his career be overshadowed by rock and roll. He was a heavy smoker, like many people of his time. He was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1964 and went to the studio for the last time in June of that year. He was only 45 years old and he died on February 15th of 1965. I didn't realize he died so young. 45. Although I wonder, did I not know or when I was a kid, that age did not seem young? I mean, that's the thing. It's... I wonder if it's a little bit of both. So there's another uh, balladeer, as we like to call him, uh, Johnny Mathis, um, yes. who grew up listening to Cole. He was his favorite singer. And he has a great uh, quote about him saying, he was the nicest man you'd ever want to meet in your life. Just a very down to earth person who happened to be one of the greatest musicians of all time. And he became, of course, a model for so many people, especially someone like myself. That's so sweet. Yeah, he's a, I cannot, can you imagine if we had had Nat King Cole for another 45 years? I know. So that's a little bit about Nat King Cole. Obviously, there's so much more, and I could pull pages upon pages upon pages of entertainers that we have now today who are influenced by him, especially within the Black community. Take your time. Just treat yourself in this holiday season. Sit down, take a bath, get some hot cocoa, and just let Nat King Cole sing to you. You will be so thankful and so in love with the human experience. Oh, that's a great way to end. Hmm. 
I love him. Because I was sad, but that that's a really beautiful thing to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I'm I'm not familiar with a lot of Christmas music, but I believe he has a lot of Christmas music. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Treat yourself. Even if you don't celebrate that particular holiday, treat yourself to his voice. Yeah. And the love songs, just as good and soothing with the bath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On that note, while you're hanging out, don't drop your phone into the bath, but perhaps visit us on social media. <gasps> oh, that's a segue. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Two thumbs up and a smiley face emoji for that. <laughs> um, yes, um, we are everything at Murphy Brown Pod. Primarily Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have a good time there. You can also find our website is murphybrownpod.com. And if you'd like to help support the podcast so we can literally do this, it's murphybrownpod.com slash donate. And we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. So Avery says something nice to Phil. And I'm sorry, Phil, I keep saying Phil. I want Phil and Avery to be married, apparently. I know. I love them. (laughs) Uh, 